Four Unit 5 school board candidates push an e-learning curriculum to save money. They say it's not like it was during COVID shutdowns. There's a lot of people who just don't like it. They don't like what we're trying to do. What e-learning might look like is coming up on WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. On today's show, you'll also hear from Jamie Snow, who is going back to school while in prison. He's serving a life sentence, but sees value in prison education. Do you want him to, you know, come back into the community with, uh, you know, some educational skills? Plus a Black History Month profile of the Gaston family, three generations of business owners, and how they have dealt with prejudice. It might take me a little longer, and I might have to work a little harder, but I always get it. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Ryan Fuller and his mother Stephanie. She just put my mind at ease. She's like, hey, there's lots of kids that have hearing aids. It's so much different than what you remember and just really made me feel comfortable mom to mom. Ryan and Stephanie's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Thanks for listening on this Tuesday. Expanded online classes are major campaign issues for four people hoping to grab seats on the Unit 5 school board in April. Brad Wirth, Amy Jetta, Dennis Frank, and Molly Emery say they want to see McLean County's largest school district adopt an e-learning curriculum. That's their promise to voters if they're elected to the school board. They say it would prevent cuts to extracurricular programs that could happen if voters reject a tax referendum. WGLT's Lindsay Jones files this report. The four candidates promoting e-learning as a solution to Unit 5's budget crisis are clear on at least one thing. Their proposal, they say, is not anything like the online instruction during the COVID-era school shutdowns. Here's one of the candidates, Brad Worth. This type of an initiative definitely gets compared to the COVID world, but they're night and day different. They don't even, they're not, it's, it's apples and oranges. Here's Amy Jetta. We're looking at um, e-learning tools, not going back to Google Classroom, not going back to the lockdown. A lot of people get traumatized when you say e-learning. And here's Dennis Frank. This isn't COVID. When we say e-learning, it's not COVID. So that was a mistake. So that's what the candidates say the proposal is not. So what exactly is the idea? Here's Brad Worth again. What we're finding is we have, like, just looking at sixth graders through 12th graders, we're finding that just by trimming a very small amount of classes, by changing maybe electives or one class per semester Mm -hmm. and offering that through a true immersive electronic curriculum, that we have the ability to carve out about $11 million in, in cost. So in summary, the candidate's proposal is to switch some classes, more than likely electives, to an online platform. That said, Worth did add they've looked at the possibility of online delivery of core subjects too. There's value in other areas as well. Mm -hmm. So um, math is one of the subjects that's um, almost universally, it's delivered more effectively through these immersive e-learning platforms than having a teacher in front of you. It's not clear who exactly would be delivering this instruction. Worth says the candidate's research thus far has led them to a few companies. We talked to a couple different companies. Edmentum was one of them. They didn't really want to talk to us very much. So Imagine Learning was a company that was more willing to share 
um, pricing information, um, some case study information that was out there. But no matter which company, hypothetically, were to be chosen as Unit 5's proposed e-learning provider, the end result includes a reduction in force. Here's Worth again. It has to be a combination of teachers and administrative staff. Um, Cutting them? Or there's, there's no way around it. Other than audio from this interview, there's not a lot of detail easily available about this e-learning proposal. The four candidates running together as the so-called conservative slate do have a campaign website, but the information there has been scant on details. Details that would indicate, for example, how many staff members would have to be cut to close in on that proposed $11 million in savings the candidates say e-learning creates. Unit 5 Superintendent Kristen Weichel says cuts like that would be devastating to the district. You're talking anywhere from 200 to 225 maybe certified staff members. So those would be teachers, counselors, psychologists, social workers, admin, any of those certified personnel. I personally can't imagine how that would work. Weichel also says companies that provide e-learning curriculum or platforms don't do it for cheap. The district ran into this fact during the COVID school years when the state was under an executive order mandating districts provide an alternative to in-person learning for students who needed to remain at home. We looked at it, but we didn't um, go with it because it was cost prohibitive. It was very expensive to do at that large of a scale. Weichel says Unit 5 looked at this possible COVID-era mass implementation of e-learning with Edmentum, the same company that Brad Worth says was not interested in talking to him and the other candidates he's running with. That's because Unit 5 already does use Edmentum for some students' instruction. But Weichel says those instances are, quote, rare and case-specific. One example is for students who need to make up a credit. Then if we have students who are who are on medical homebound and who will be out for a while, we may use Edmentum. And I say may because we have to look at every student individually. It can't be a widespread decision. Part of the reason those instances are rare is because educators say best practices, research, and lived experiences during the pandemic indicate that in-person learning is what works the best for most kids. Here's Julie Hagler, a 25-year veteran teacher at Normal Community High School and current president of the Unit 5 Education Association. I don't know of a single teacher who would like to bring back e-learning because we know that those personal connections you make with students and those one-on-one interactions that you have with them is really where true learning and growth takes place. Hagler, echoing Superintendent Kristen Weichel's worry, says a mass reduction in staff would likely have consequences that reach beyond the immediate. If you cut that staff, you would never get that staff back. And with the current teacher shortage, releasing staff is not in anyone's best interest. And if educators leave Unit 5 because they're forced out due to a reduction in staff, they're going to find jobs in other places because the demand is so high, um, especially in the surrounding communities, Peoria, Decatur. Implementing a reduction in force is a complicated process in which guidelines, laws, and contract language dictate who gets cut and when they're due to be notified. Unit 5 attorney Kurt Richardson says that means the current proposal of slashing staff and moving to e-learning might not save as much as people may think. Generally speaking, it's the least senior teachers who are subject to that reduction in force. Those are the people in general that are lower on the salary schedule. And here's Euphias Julie Hagler again. 
So we would be losing a lot of our younger teachers who bring, they really do bring a vitality to the profession. They bring new ideas, and then we incorporate those ideas into our established practices to make us better. And so it would be a tremendous loss to the district if we were to lose that resource. There's also the matter of whether a mass implementation of e-learning is even legal for any school district under Illinois school code. Hybrid learning, part remote, part in-person, as an option that students could just opt into, is only permissible in situations in which a public health emergency has been declared and the state superintendent has decided whether schools pivot to remote learning only or a hybrid mixture. Here's Unit 5 attorney Kurt Richardson again. There's no authority for doing a mass remote learning um, without that public disaster declaration or a public health emergency. And if e-learning were adopted in a widespread way for in-school classes, there could also be complications with teacher contracts. Say you had an auditorium full of students all on computers, uh, you know, learning, uh, that certainly increases the workload and affects terms and conditions of employment. So that would be something that would be subject to collective bargaining. Unit 5 School Board candidate Brad Worth says effectively messaging e-learning or classes delivered through online curriculum companies has been, at times, difficult. I mean, then there's, again, a lot of pushback of comparing it to COVID, which I don't know how you fight that because it's not the same. We can, there's, there's a lot of people who just don't like it. They don't like what we're trying to do. They can come up with lots of reasons why it sucks. And there's not a whole lot we can do about that. Early voting is already underway at the McLean County Government Center in downtown Bloomington. Elections for school board and other local offices are officially on April 4th. I'm Lindsay Jones. You can read more about this campaign issue at WGLT.org. Coming up tomorrow on Sound Ideas, you'll meet candidates running for the District 87 school board in Bloomington. Prison classrooms are opening doors to graduate degrees for Illinois inmates to start a new life when they get out of prison. WGLT's Eric Stock has the story. Jamie Snow is serving life in prison for a murder that happened in Bloomington more than 30 years ago. Snow still has hope he'll one day be freed. If that day ever comes, Snow could leave prison with a master's degree. He's scheduled to graduate in 2025 from North Park University in Chicago. He's been taking classes while imprisoned at Stateville Correctional Center. He's seeking a degree in Christian ministry and restorative arts. Referred to as inside students, the men study alongside North Park students, also working toward advanced degrees. The courses are a way to improve incarcerated men and women before they leave state custody. For those unconvinced of the value of the programs, Snow asks, Do you want them to, you know, come back into the community with, uh, you know, some educational skills that they've that they've learned while they were incarcerated, or do you just want them to come back into the community exactly like they were when they went in? North Park started classes in 2015, blending traditional and incarcerated students for a certificate-level program. The college launched a four-year master's degree in 2018. Vicki Reddy is a graduate of the first North Park cohort. She now serves as North Park's Director of Operations. Reddy says offering a master's degree to men with the decades or a lifetime left on their sentences was a key component to the program. To be in this sort of a program, they do have to have a pretty big commitment to want to be there and do it because they're not necessarily getting anything out of it on paper. Um, so I think that, that the... The personal commitment and the desire to learn just creates 
a different type of individual who is looking to study. The graduates also become tutors for others engaged in educational programs. The state of Illinois operates a network of more than 40 facilities, including 24 correctional centers. The Department of Corrections offers a collage of basic and advanced adult education programs, along with undergraduate and vocational training opportunities. Six facilities offer post-secondary education toward a bachelor's degree or higher. The Illinois Department of Corrections says Stateville Prison in Crest Hill has the most post-secondary offerings through its relationships with North Park, Northwestern, Northeastern, and DePaul universities. The state says nearly 40 inmates earned associate's degrees and nine have completed bachelor's degrees during the first seven months of the state's current fiscal year. For students to be eligible for the North Park program, they must have a high school diploma or GED and sufficient reading and writing skills to handle the demanding coursework. The average age of new residents of the state's penal system is 39. That's well above the age most people are working on education goals. Jamie Snow was more than 15 years into his life sentence before he signed up for classes through DePaul University. So I just had this stubborn streak in me, I guess. It was like, you know, I can't learn anything from any of these people in here, and I really don't want to. Snow provided a recorded response to questions from WGLT. Snow maintains he's innocent of killing Bill Little in Bloomington in 1991. Snow became involved in DePaul's Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. He's a member of a DePaul think tank where a cohort works together on legislative proposals related to incarceration issues. Snow is 57. He estimates he spends at least 15 hours a week on homework. It has gotten me so far out of my comfort zone. Um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky that I got into it. Research from the nonpartisan group the Rand Corporation shows those who complete educational programs before their release had 43% lower odds of reoffending. The majority of the 29,000 individuals now in prison will be released and returned to communities where they will need a job, housing, and support as they start over with a felony record. And Vicki Reedy with North Park University says the initial focus of the program shifted to an emphasis on reentry skills after input from Stateville students. And a big piece of what our students began to push back on was we don't want you to come in here and just make us happy prisoners. Like we're not actually, we're not actually, um, we, we don't want to just have our lives in here improved. North Park has opened a similar program at the Logan Correctional Center for Women in Lincoln. And North Park University instructor Mary Veerman says the results are also apparent in family relationships. Our students at Logan have talked pretty regularly about how they will connect with their family members around things that they're learning in courses or that they'll connect something they've heard in a course to a conversation that they've had with, with a family member. The Illinois Department of Correction says for every dollar invested in prison education, taxpayers save 4 to $5 in reincarceration costs during the first three years after their release. With reporting from Edith Brady Lunny, I'm Eric Stahl. The financial obligation of the North Park program is covered by grants and private donations.
Stories and conversations around Bloomington Normal in McLean County. This is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. The end of February today technically marks the end of Black History Month. But for a year-round reminder of the impact of black entrepreneurship on Bloomington Normal, look no further than the Gaston family. The Gastons are now in their third generation of business ownership in Bloomington. Patriarch Robert ran a barbershop downtown. His son James runs the club, Jazz Up Front. It's in the same building. And James' niece, Shayla, now owns a salon. In this interview with WGLT's Ryan Denham, James Gaston talks about his family's long legacy of formidable business ownership. I remember my dad telling me a story that, you know, he couldn't actually lease a building in town because he was a black man at that time. There was a uh, friend of his, uh, a white gentleman, who said, Bob, I'll take care of you on that. So he went and he leased my dad's first shop and sold him the lease for a dollar. And he said that's how he got, in, got into his first shop. I remember that story. And then the rest is history. He was downtown Bloomington for 40 years, I believe, after that. And my brother Gary was uh, beside him for uh, a large part of those years. What are some things that you learned from your dad about the way to handle yourself when you're running a business? I imagine a lot of sons feel this way. You know, I, you know, I'll never be... You know, where my dad, I don't ever think I measure up to what my dad did, but, you know, some people might think I have, some people might think I, I you know, I haven't, I don't know. But I always looked up to my dad and I always thought he, he did, this, he, he accomplished a lot for where he came from and the struggles he had to go through, you know, and I think that uh, he was a force to be reckoned with and he handled his business. And I can, I can remember phone calls that he made when I was sitting right there where he, would get things done. He'd call the bank. He'd call, you know, the the dealer, the auto dealership. He'd call the doctor. He'd call whoever, and he would get results that he wanted from whoever he was talking to. And I always admired that about him. You mentioned your dad, and when he was trying to go out on his own and start his business, the lease mm. story. Have there been times in your business ownership here in Bloomington where you felt a similar type of prejudice against you? <laughs> Let me say yes. I will say yes, but let me also say that, you know, I don't let that affect me as far as I don't like it, but I, I know I can get around it. It's not going to stop me from doing anything I want to do. You know, if I can't get what I need one in one place, I'll get it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's people that obviously have uh, made me feel like, you know, they're not, I can't get the satisfaction that I need because of who I am, but they're wrong. You know, I will get it. You know, I don't, it might take me a little longer and I might have to work a little harder, but I always get it. How did you uh, discover and get into music? My mother told me when she met my dad that he was on the corner with his guitar playing blues, singing, playing and singing blues. And that's how they met, she said. And uh, so it's always been in my, in my house. Growing up, there was always music playing in my house. Hmm. Jazz, blues, R&B, you know, Motown, you name it. It was all, always. What was like the biggest band that you were in? Like the one that, you know, made the most, uh, you know, had the most traction, toured with the most, uh, that kind it, of thing? It was called Band X. Band X, okay. Yes, and uh, it was uh, started by a, a very dear friend of mine. Steve Chesney uh, was the leader of the band and... Uh, we had a, a lot of talented local cats 
in the band. Uh, Jeff Swartz was on trombone and Donnie Shires was on saxophone. Steve Jackson was on sax. We had uh, Chris Meese on drums. We had Scott Nelson on drums. Bruce Bradshaw was on drums for a while. Uh, of course, I mentioned Delmer Brown, Chuck Tripp. I joined the band in 1967. And if there's any uh, people listening, I'm not really that old. <laughs> I was a sophomore in high school in 67, and I joined Band X. How did you kind of make that pivot from, you know, performing to, you know, club management and, and the other side of, of, of the business, so to speak? Well, you know, I was, like I say, I was always around music and I was fortunate enough to, to know a lot of musicians. I got my first job at a place in town, who, which was a famous place. Uh, it's called the Red Lion Inn. And, you know, they had groups like REO Speedwagon and the group Champagne and uh, Woody Herman's Thundering Herd even came through and... Uh, Little Richard was there, you know. Uh, Chaka Khan was there before she was Chaka Khan. You know, was there I was back in the music business again. And uh, my mentor, Bob Graham, you know, I kind of, and Mike Spob, who, who ran the uh, schooners here in town for years. You know, I worked with those guys and, uh, you know, they taught me a little bit, a lot about the business, you know. You know, I used to go to, when I was a kid, my dad would take me to this club called the Bel Air Club, which was owned by a gentleman by the name of Dick Bell, who was a formidable black businessman, formidable black businessman in town here. He was, he had a lot of, quite a few businesses uh, when I was a kid. I used to have to sit up in the balcony and watch the music, and I just fell in love with music, man. And then the possibility of being able to be the guy that was bringing that type of uh, talent and, and, and music to the community, I thought, well, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And you opened Jazz Up Front, I think, eight years ago, thereabouts? Yeah, about 15, okay. 2015, yeah. How's it, uh, how's it doing today? Uh, you know, it's, uh, I have a, a saying that I love, you know, sometimes I look like a genius and sometimes I don't, you know, but, you know, we're hanging in there, man. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's more about the love of the business than, you know, the profit of the business. I know most people think that, think, would think that's crazy if you're a business person, right? But. You know, I don't think I'm, I don't see myself ever getting rich in, in, in what I do, but, uh, you know, I love what I do and it gives me the independence to do some of the things that I want to do. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm happy. I, I always look at life like this. I am blessed because my eyes are wide open and I see what goes on in this, in the world today. And I have nothing to complain about. I've got a lot of brothers and sisters and friends and, and acquaintances that, uh, you know, I know people, they, I care about them, they care about me, and uh, that's all you can ask for in this life. That's James Gaston, the owner of Jazz Up Front in downtown Bloomington, speaking with WGLT's Ryan Denham. You can read more about the Gaston family, including an interview with third-generation business owner Shayla Gaston from the Be Gorgeous Salon at WGLT.org. And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today came from WGLT's Ryan Denham, Eric Stock, and Lindsay Jones. The show is produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 FM, WGLT, and WGLT.org, Bloomington Normal's public media, part of the NPR network.